0: Hello and welcome to Women and Shakespeare. I'm your host, Dr. Varsha Panjwani, and I have still not stopped celebrating Shakespeare's birthday, mainly because it's an excuse to eat lots of cake and, of course, drink lots of ale. Well, I'm excited to present part two of Shakespeare's birthday episode in which I talk to the phenomenal actor and director, Ajua Ando. Now, in part one, I promised you some special extras. So I am thrilled that for the birthday episode, Women and Shakespeare podcast has partnered with a special issue of the journal Otherness, Essays and Studies. This special issue is on the topic of representing Richard. In the words of its brilliant editor, Dr. Anne-Sophie Refsku, it brings together a cluster of analyses and conversations about representing and misrepresenting the title characters in Richard II and Richard III. These articles are by scholars and creative practitioners from Mexico to Australia, from the UK and Denmark. I especially recommend that you listen to these twin episodes alongside Delia Jarrett McCauley and Emer McHugh's contributions in the special issue. Jarrett McCauley, who incidentally, you might remember was the first guest on this podcast, uh, contextualizes and traces the cultural history that preceded the all women of color production of Richard II, directed by Ajua Ando and Lynette Linton at Shakespeare's Globe in 2019. McHugh, who I very much hope will be a future guest on the podcast, provides a magisterial review of the filmed version of this production. The link to this freely available journal special issue and the freely available film of the production is in the show notes. Now, I know that you are keen to listen to Ajua again, so I promise I'll stop talking. But just a reminder that in part one, Ajua talked about playing Ulysses, about Britishness, about history and about the rehearsal process of Richard II. So without further ado, let's pick up on the conversation.
1: We all cried and we cried for the relief of just being in a room as an artist, not a woman, Not a woman of colour, just an artist.
0: Back to Richard II, the role has such an illustrious performance history in this country. Fiona Shaw has played it, David Tennant has played it, Ian McKellen has played it. Did you see any of these productions? What was your conception of the role?
1: I actively didn't watch any of those because I don't like having other people's performances in my head. I, I like to come to the work and find out who that person is for me. I did reflect on some of the performances after mm-hmm. I knew who Richard was for me. I think Richard often gets played as a bit sort of camp and fey and weedy. And I didn't see that in the text. What I did see was a child who lost their father and then their grandfather. who was then sent abroad and told, you are king. And I saw a lamb going into a field of wolves. All these vying nobles, wanting power in the country, wanting land. And here's a 10-year-old child, basically unprotected, who has to navigate all of this. A 10-year-old child who, by the time he's in his teens, has faced down what Tyler and the Peasants' Revolt and come to some arrangement when the country had been in complete turmoil before that, after plague had decimated the country and left it in a very unstable state in his grandfather's time because, of course, his father never becomes king, the Black Prince. He dies before he would have ascended to the throne. So you have this small child who's in basically a foreign country trying to work out who the people are who will protect him and keep him safe. The queen has similarly been shunted over when she was nine. So this is the historical background. You don't see any of that stuff. But you see the outworkings of that. You see insecure people gathering their yes people around them. This boy, who's now the king, who just has a version of what he thinks the king is supposed to be. How do I be a king? And he understands that acquisition, oh, that's important. Everybody respects acquisition and money. So let's have lots of it. Let's get more of it. So I think there's an aspect of that. He's not the big good soldier like his cousin. He lives in the shadow of his cousin, would obviously, patently, would make a much better king. He's good at fighting. People like him. When he goes in the streets, people love him. But he's not the king. I'm the king. So I have to be the king. Everybody pay attention to me. It's that need. Love me, love me, love me. I just see a little boy going, pick me up, someone. Pick me up. So that's how Richard resonated for me. So for him, it's really important, this idea of the divine right of kings. God wants me to be the king. So I wanted to delve into how this Undeveloped, unsupported person tries to manifest the most powerful person in the kingdom through the authority of the most powerful being in the universe. He believes God put him in this place at this time to be king of this nation. When he gives up his crown, his betrayal of God, that would kill him on its, on its own. And you hear me talking about him as him and he. Because for me, the regendering of roles, I'm not particularly bothered about that. Play the person, play their needs, play their desires and their wants. I don't want people walking about the stage doing man walking or lady no, walking. No, no. Just be a person and walk. How do you walk? You, Adwa, you're playing Richard. Walk how you walk. Just do it. No, you don't have to pretend. Just be who you be.
0: I saw the production and I didn't think that any of you was consciously manning it up or anything like that. I thought that you played people and that is why it rang true. It resonated because uh, you weren't then thinking about, okay, who's playing a man who's playing a woman. All of that went out of the window and you concentrated on the story. And also the film of this production is Mm. available in full on YouTube and you are the director on that. And also it has been released by your company as well. And I was wondering... Yes, Swinging the Lens. I thought that was a brilliant name too. And what are some of the challenges and opportunities of filming that production? I mean, especially because Farah Karim Cooper was on the podcast. And she was saying that the space in which the production was played, Sam Wanamaker Playhouse, is not a space which works for women of colour because it had a black wall and is candlelit, which doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't feel like it was a space built with people of colour in mind. So did that pose additional problems for design and for filming? How did you navigate that?
1: Well, so that space to me just says, if you're of colour, get off my stage. And I have seen shows there where I have just gone, this may as well be a radio play for that actor and that actor because I can't see their face. So one of the first things I did after sulking and stomping about the place, because it, that space says, you are not welcome here. So yeah. if it's saying that to me on stage, what's it saying to me in the audience? Your type, your kind aren't welcome on this stage. So the first thing I said was to Raja who was our amazing designer. She is a goddess among women. And anybody that has the good fortune to have her design their show is lucky, is blessed. I said to Raja, "Right, knock out all the black. We're going to clad the space in bamboo because bamboo is a material that is found in the countries of all the people, all the heritages of the people involved in the production. And when I say the production, I'm talking about stage management as well. And costume supervised and everything else so that was that um i wanted bamboo also because it is light but durable and it's a great surface for bouncing light off so everything we did was about throwing light into the space so if you see the floor that we had it's very light colored material with two great big brass strips down it again it's light reflective. And I wanted that. And then we just banged as many candles into that space as we could possibly get. And we, of course, we use them in different ways. And there are moments where you, just, you want it quite dark and you just want a pool of light on someone's face. But then the other thing you have to do is you have to work out how people can be close to a candle or be holding a candle or drop the candles or whatever we needed to do. So you drop the candles, you block out someone's sight line up there. So then you have to think about how you balance all of that stuff. So you have to do all that in order to get more light onto people. And literally, I was going, okay, that actor has a really dark skin. We've got to get more candles on them. How do we get the candles on them so it doesn't look like, hello, I'm an actor lighting my face, (laughs) as opposed to I'm in the court and I'm having a row with somebody about X, Y, Z. So again, what happens is, as actors of colour, as a whole team of colour, we end up having to do more work than if we were a white cast in order to achieve the same effect. So not only are we dealing with the text, with the naysayers who are going, well, these women doing it, these people of colour, but practically we're having to do more work all the time. So there are scenes where there is um, Aisha Darker, who plays Omel, Richard's cousin, who Richard is in love with and who's in love with Richard. And then Layla, who was playing the queen. And they're both standing there with candles next to my face. Why? Because we're sitting upstage and I've got a great big speech. I need light. So we make it part of the scene. Like, these are Richard's people. And they are Richard's people, these these two characters, O'Mel and the queen. They're loyal to the end. Their whole lives, they're loyal. And so you make it part of the ritual that they hold the candles next to the king
0: because... Is what you do. So So. a lot of work just to be in that space and perform. Absolutely. I want to now turn to another play. You were involved with Julius Caesar a lot and you were involved with it twice. So you played Portia in Gregory Doran's production in 2012 with Royal Shakespeare Mm. Company and then Mm. also Casca in Nick Heitner's production. This play, Julius Caesar, really does have a very special kind of place in African writers and activists' heart, I think, because Delia Jarrett McCauley, who was also on the podcast, based her entire novel about child soldiers in Sierra Leone around that. And then Mm. in one of the videos that you have produced for RSC, you talk about how Nelson Mandela finds Mm. courage in that play. Mm. So after being in it twice, what is your relationship with that play? I love it.
1: I love it. The way that those anti-apartheid political prisoners got courage for themselves, got encouragement for themselves, was by having a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare s- smuggled in to the prison. It was in, now, I can't remember what it was. Was it a Sanskrit text? But they covered the cover with, with something religious. So
0: yes, that it was like, oh, no, I know about have, it. It have, was, um... you know, yeah, religious images of various gods from India, Lakshmi. Yeah, that's right.
1: And they all had different plays that they loved. But for Nelson Mandela, yes, it was it was Julius Caesar saying, "Cowards die many times before their death; the valiant taste of death but once." And and I love and what I really love about that was there's Nelson Mandela fighting against the tyranny of this racist state-sanctioned um, apportioning of privilege on, or not privilege to a whole population. So he's fighting against tyranny and he chooses the words of a man who Shakespeare presents in some ways as the tyrant to be got rid of. So someone fighting tyranny uses the words of a tyrant as an encouragement to fight tyranny. There's something really beautiful about that because what it says to you is Julius Caesar may have been a tyrant in some eyes But he was just a man in other eyes and a man who had to give himself courage to face his life. And it brings me to the thing that I love about Shakespeare is he doesn't write goodies and baddies. We we may choose to stage things in that way, but that's really reductionist of us and quite dreary, frankly, because nobody thinks they're a baddie. We're all just living our life and doing what we think is the best thing at the time in any given set of circumstances. So there is a humanity to this man who people regard as tyrannical. Even as you may see him do tyrannous things, there remains a humanity. And I think there's something of the brilliance of that that must have resonated with Mandela because he had to fight a way to work with people who he absolutely was fighting against every value that they possessed in order to come to a reasonably blood-free transition of power from the apartheid system. To the rainbow nation system. So I, uh, there's, there's something about the resonance of taking the judgment out to find the practical way of seeing all the human beings. As you See, I keep coming back to this, seeing human beings as human beings, because otherwise you, don't, you can't engage with people.
0: What you have outlined mm. is key, is seeing multiple perspectives and shades of a particular person, but also uh, I think very practically, you've opened up a very good lesson plan to actually study Julius Caesar alongside these political tracts, alongside Nelson Mandela, say, taking courage from it, Mm -hmm. alongside Delia Jarrett's Macaulay's commentary on it or adaptation of it, because that is what I think will make it richer for the students to understand how it's participating in the history and how it's participating in the current moment. So I think there's a lesson plan in there. I
1: think what's so wonderful about Shakespeare Oh my gosh, I can—I'm so boring. But I about Shakespeare. But I, what I think is so wonderful about Shakespeare—you're not talking about kings and queens and rulers and generals and blah blah blah. I mean, you are, but you're not. You're just talking about us. And Shakespeare leaves that canvas so open for us to pour ourselves into it. And so that's what makes me go: Why are we playing these women whiny? They don't need to be whiny. Are you whiny
0: as a woman? Are all women whiny? Just to follow up on that, you were saying once that young women who perform Shakespeare for auditions sometimes, they play these women characters as lacking in power. But at the Mm. same time, Shakespeare does write powerful women. I mean, you've played Lady Macbeth and you've played Portia and these are very powerful women in their own right. So why do you think that is? Why do you think all these young women are playing them as powerless?
1: Well, for one thing, they often don't come into auditions doing those parts because, so I'm on the audition panel at RADA, because you come in and you play characters generally who are in your playing range. So you're less likely to play a, a lady, Macbeth, for example, than you are to come in and play Constance or Julia, or a Juliet. But these can be really biffy characters too. There's, I just think that we, we've we got into tropes about the way we do things. And we don't need to. There is a deal of women coming into scenes and saying to their husbands, why aren't you speaking to me? Don't go to the war. Or there's, And you can do them, like, why aren't you speaking to me? Don't go to the war. Or you can go, well, why aren't you speaking to me? Don't go to the war. There's ways of doing things it was something I really thought about with Portia because I've seen so many Portias where they sort of whine on at Brutus about things. And you go, no, at the end of that big scene, she's going to say, look at my leg. And later on, you're going to hear that she swallowed hot coals. Imagine swallowing. Imagine as the coals come closer to your face, the intensity of the heat. And you're going to put that in your mouth, knowing it's going to burn your tongue out. It probably won't even get that. It'll, it'll burn out your throat. The woman that has the courage and the clarity of political thinking to go, I am not going to be paraded through the streets as a prop after my husband is dead by Octavius. I'm not going to be that woman. He's not taking me as spoiled. I'm going to kill myself rather than do that. The woman that has the political nerve nice to do that is not a woman who, Brutus, why don't you talk to me? Who are those men? She's going to go, hello, we married for love. Because if you do the research, they were cousins and they weren't supposed to marry and they flouted everything and they married each other in spite of both their sets of families. She's the daughter of Cato, the philosopher, from whom we get stoicism, the concept of stoicism. She would have been like the Jackie Kennedy of her time portia she moved in her family were political she moved in political circles her whole life she knew what politics meant and she knew what you need to do to strategize within policy so when she talks to brutus it's one political brain to another political brain also it's two romantic hearts who love each other so how do you have that conversation so i'm I'm always sort of saying think think wider think Think about the whole
0: of who that person is, and also even young women like you were saying, Juliet. I mean, she utters okay. a very philosophical. She is so philosophical. She reasons everything. She tells us exactly she why she will go after Romeo. Exactly why she'll go after Romeo after Tybalt's death. So she's very reasonable. I, I don't thinking. know why. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why she's played as this kind of flighty or absolutely sheltered young thing. She's actually the most philosophical character. I know. Absolutely. bold. She's bold. Bold. Oh, yeah. I love
1: him. I love him. I'm going to marry him. I thought it was him, but no, it's him. Wrong family. Don't care. Him. Absolutely! Come on, knight. Come on! I want to have sex. Let it be night now. Come on!
0: Absolutely. So I think that is a really, really powerful and amazing note to wrap things on. Play these women as these whole, powerful, bold, political, philosophical characters. I mean, Shakespeare's written them. So I think mm. own 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 that language, own that own uh, all of everything. It. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for sharing all your thoughts with us and leaving us with so much joy about Shakespeare and women.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. And thank you for all that you do to just put us back in the conversation.
0: That was Ajua Ando talking about women of color, Richard II, Julius Caesar, Portia, and other powerful women both on and off the Shakespearean stage. Next month, our guest is the academic and writer Dr. Naomi Miller, and we will be discussing her first novel, Imperfect Alchemist, about a brilliant mind in Shakespeare's time, Mary Sidney. Shakespeare too makes a little cameo in the novel and gets inspired. So to find out more, remember to tune in to Women and Shakespeare, streaming at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you want to listen with the full transcripts, head over to our website, www.womenandshakespeare.com. Until then, keep smashing the patriarchy.